A few years back, politicians and pundits described the American public as war-weary. The term war-weary describes an outlook or disposition of being exhausted or worn out from a prolonged conflict. From what I can tell, the, the use of the term has dropped off significantly in recent days, but the idea does seem to linger as the question is often raised, will there be boots on the ground in this arena or that arena? I'm not going to debate whether or not being war-weary is an accurate assessment, assessment of the American public. Instead, I'm here to confess as a Christian uh, that from time to time, I'm often war-weary and world-weary. And I suspect that many of us here this morning feel this way. We're not war-weary in the sense that we're exhausted by a protracted overseas conflict in the nation uh, in which we live has been engaged in. No, we're war-weary in the sense that every day uh, we do battle with the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are spiritually war-weary. Day after day, we are enticed by the trappings of this world. Day after day, we, we fight for joy while we fight off fits of anger and selfishness. Day after day, we endeavor to be sober-minded and watchful because we know that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you're not war-weary today, you probably were yesterday. And if you weren't war-weary yesterday, then you probably will be tomorrow. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? I promise that I'll offer some hope in a little while. Um, but the truth is, is that life in this world as a Christian is not always easy. In fact, I'm tempted to say that it is never easy. How then should we live when faced with trials on every side? Should we just give in? Should we stop fighting and join in the apparently easy life of the world? This morning, as we study Psalm 73, and in this psalm, we meet a war-weary believer. Asaph is tired of seeing the wicked prosper while he suffers. In the end, Asaph gains some perspective on how he ought to live in this difficult world. And it's my prayer that we would learn from him as we study God's word. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Psalm 73 beginning on page 485. 485. We're going to look at Psalm 73 under three headings. These three headings will be the, the three points, the outline of my sermon. Uh, they are temptation, meditation, and salvation. If you're taking notes, those three headings are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. So let's start with our first point, temptation. We are going to see how Asaph himself was tempted. Look at, at the first 12 verses of Psalm 73. Read Psalm 73, verses, verses 1 to 12. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. 
They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. You'll notice there from the heading of Psalm 73 that this is a psalm of Asaph. Uh, most of what we know about Asaph comes from First and Second Chronicles. In First Chronicles, we learn that he was a Levite, that he served at the tabernacle. Perhaps more importantly, along with his brothers, he was appointed by the chief Levites to, to sing as the Ark of the Covenant, God's earthly throne, was brought to Jerusalem. Shortly after David named Asaph the chief person to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, uh, it's, it's not clear whether or not Psalm 73 was penned by Asaph around that time or, or by one of his sons. The, the dating of it's not clear. His sons may have written this, kind of following in their, their father's footsteps and led the people of Israel in the worship of God. Either way, from Psalm 73, we do know that Asaph, or one of his sons, was, was wrestling with what was going on in the world. And this was not written by an immature believer. This was written by a person who knew God and regularly led God's people in worship. He is struggling he is a war and world-weary believer. And I think we can even say that he was tempted by the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, didn't he say there in, in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogance. He was tempted to doubt, tempted to sin, tempted to think, speak, and live like the wicked. But that's not where Psalm 73 begins, is it? No, Psalm 73 begins by setting out a truth. The truth that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And what the psalmist says here is that God is good to His people. He's, he's good to Israel. He's delivered His people. He, he protects them. He dwells with them. He makes their lands to prosper, giving them food to eat and water to drink. Surely God is good to Israel. He is good to the pure in heart, to those who endeavor to live lives worthy of being called by His name. The pure in heart are not perfect in heart, but they are those who endeavor to keep God's statutes and walk in His ways. They are those who, in the words of the opening psalm of this altar, of Psalm 1, who delight in the Lord, in the law of the Lord. And so endeavor to live by it. God is good to His people, to those who live under His sovereign care as their covenant Lord. God is good to His people, and yet the wicked prosper. That's what trips Asaph up. In looking out at the world and seeing the prosperity of the wicked, he almost stumbles, he merely slips, he momentarily envies them. He almost, again in the words of Psalm 1, walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scoffers. He almost joins in with them. What was going on in the lives of the wicked that tempted Asaph to envy them 
and almost given to living like them? Well, verses 4 to 12 have the answer. Verse 4 reveals that the wicked, for the most part, enjoy a, a physically healthy and robust life. When Asaph says that their bodies are fat and sleek, he's not saying that they're overweight and greasy. No, uh, these are, are Hebrew terms and idioms, uh, which are, are more often than not associated with blessing. The wicked enjoy physical prosperity when it comes to their bodies. Verse 5 continues this theme of physical prosperity and ease. The wicked don't face troubles as others do. The burdens of their lives are light. They don't spend their days in toil and labor. And to make matters worse, they, they don't ever seem to be stricken with any disease or physical hardship. Who here has the body they want? Who here hasn't been stricken with uh, sickness in the past few weeks, thanks to the rain and the, the wonderful change in seasons? Who here hasn't had a hard workload over the past few months? Sometimes we look around and our friends who don't know the Lord seem to be doing just fine. They've got a decent career. They seem to handle their workload well. They never get sick like you always do. They have these natural, if not magical, antibacterial hands which kill germs on contact. Uh, they never take their kids to the ER like you do. Oh, and by the way, why is it that they can eat whatever they want and never struggle with their weight? Their idea of exercise is doing one sit-up a day, sitting up in the morning and laying back down at night. They're just fine. It's wrong, isn't it? Don't we sometimes feel like Asaph is feeling? Don't we sometimes feel as though our unbelieving friends have it easy? They seem to prosper. And God's people seem to languish. It is because the wicked enjoy so much physical prosperity that they wear a very disconcerting attitude. They wear pride like a necklace. They prominently boast an attitude of self-importance and self-sufficiency. This self-important attitude, of course, means that everyone else is less important. And because this is so, the last half of verse 6 is no surprise. You see, violence covers them like a garment. They will happily harm anyone in their way. Verse 7 is striking because what the psalmist is doing is he's calling us to see through the wicked person's, person's eyes and into their heart. It would be like standing next to a wicked person and watching them as their eyes bulge out as all the world has to offer. They see all the world's trinkets and treasures and they long after them. They want them and you can see it in their eyes. In seeing the desire for the things of this world in the eyes of the wicked, we see the folly overflowing in their hearts. They think that the things of this world will satisfy them. And let's be honest. Aren't we sometimes tempted, like the wicked, to find satisfaction in the things of this world? Sometimes our eyes swell with desire at objects we want. It would be nice to have this or that in the house. A new TV, computer, gadget, a roof that doesn't leak, a, a landscape lawn, a sports car, a, a new dishwasher, washing machine, fridge, dryer, stove, whatever it might be. Sometimes we get those new things and then they break. We know that the desires of the wicked and we know the folly of putting our hope in the things of this world. They all break. 
Brothers and sisters, be on guard against the folly of the wicked. The answer is not so easy. A new, whatever you want to fill the blank in with, will not solve the problem. Because the old thing isn't the problem. But we're getting ahead of Asaph. Now, one would think that such fortune would lead a person to humility and thankfulness, but not so the wicked. The pride that they don in attitude rolls off their lips as well. You may notice that in verses 8 to 11. They speak as though they have authority to threaten hardship. They speak as though they have the the power to bring it to pass. They speak in that sense like God, who has the power to speak and form the worlds, to speak and create to speak and make His will known and bring His will to pass. They speak as though they have power to bring these things to pass. They set their mouths against the heavens. They're verbally taunting God, just as Goliath did on the day that he was defeated. Do you remember from 1 Samuel 17 how Goliath strutted out of his camp and shouted at the armies of Israel? And do you remember how the giant cursed David by his false gods? How he spoke malice, how he threatened opposition and set his mouth against heaven itself. Can you imagine the pride that was beaming within the hearts of the Philistines as Goliath's voice was booming across the valley? You see, the wicked love the words of their wicked leaders. That's what verse 10 is picturing. No one raises any questions about their haughty words. There's no fear of defeat. Just as their leaders are overly confident, so are they. They are no better than their leaders, for they themselves say in verse 11, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? When the writers of Scripture speak of God's knowledge, they're not talking about His intellect or His cognitive ability to process facts. They're talking about God's personal knowledge of circumstances because He's involved in them. And what the wicked are saying in verse 11 is that while God may exist, He isn't personally concerned or involved with the things of this earth. He doesn't care to know about our dealings. And that is why we're going to continue to live just how we want to live. That was part of the message that we read earlier from uh, Peter. Verse 12 is surprising and honest. In fact, Asaph's honesty is precisely what is surprising about this verse. He admits that these are the ways of the wicked. And from his perspective, he sees the ease of their lives. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Life is easier for a wicked person and sometimes it is more prosperous. Do you see how looking at the lives of the wicked and their apparent prosperity could tempt Asaph, how it could tempt you? Do you see how he could envy their physical strength and their confident attitude? Do you see how he could envy their riches? Perhaps he even envied their ability to live without concern for what God thinks. They appear to live in physical, mental, verbal freedom. They're carefree or More accurately, their careless spirit is sometimes enviable. And sometimes it is tempting to live just like them. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever wanted to shake off your Christian morality and go ahead and just live? I think Asaph did. 
And the wicked seem to succeed, and the righteous seem to suffer. Children, youth, young adults, I suspect that there have been times when you've wanted to give up, to, to stop obeying your parents or those who are in authority over you, your school teachers, and perhaps even abandon the, the Christian values that your parents are trying to teach you. I wonder if you've ever felt like your non-Christian friends kind of get to have all the fun. Asaph shared that feeling. He was tempted too. But children, Psalm 73 has a very profound warning that you need to hear. Falling in with the world means you fall in the end. That is one of the lessons that Psalm 73 will communicate. Let me encourage you to, to ask your parents or a mature Christian friend about the very real dangers of living like the world in this life and the dangers for that in the life to come. Ask them why following the suffering Savior is more satisfying than all the world has to offer. And Christian, let me encourage you not to despise your suffering and trials. The Lord may be drawing you nearer to himself in them. Asaph, he envied the wicked, and he was tempted, even if it was a momentary temptation, to live just like them. In verse 4, he said that he had almost stumbled. He said that he had nearly slipped. The reason he didn't give in to temptation is because of what he meditated on. And this is the second point that we want to consider together this morning, meditation. And as we do, look at verses 13 to 17. Read Psalm 73, verses 13 to 17. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In verse 13, the psalmist begins writing from his personal perspective again. Asaph has labored for purity and innocence. He has honorably served God and endeavored to keep his commands. That's the thrust there of verse 13. He's made every effort to guard his heart from impurity. And how has he been rewarded? We hear his anguish in verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Isn't what he was going through what the wicked deserve? If this is what God gives the righteous, why not join the wicked? That's Asaph's question. He's, he's asking, is God really good to Israel? Is he really good to the pure in heart? Because right now it doesn't feel like it. One step further and Asaph will slip. If he takes one step further, he will stumble. And on a first read of Psalm 73, verse 17 appears to be the turning point. It really is a kind of turning point in the psalm. But really the turning point for Asaph may come there in verse 15. If you notice, this is where it appears that Asaph begins to kind of pull out of the nosedive. In verse 15, the darkness begins to lift ever so slowly. Read verse 15. 
if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If Asaph would have taken the mentality, the Lord does not know, that God doesn't really care about His people or the things of this world, if He had taken that mentality that He was tempted by in His heart and voiced with his, for His fellow Israelites to hear, He realizes how He would have brought great harm upon the people of God. It's interesting that Asaph thinks about what his doubts, fears, and concerns will do to others and their faith. It's not fear what others will think of him that puts Asaph back on a stable path. It's fear of God and concern for his people. When Asaph mentions God's children there at the end of verse 15, he's implicitly remembering that God has a people. He's remembering that God has a people that He has redeemed and saved out of trouble in the past. He is remembering that God has been good to Israel. He's remembering that the wicked have not always prevailed. Now, when we know that when we're meditating on a problem in our lives and meditating on God's fatherly involvement in our lives, the seed of an idea doesn't come into full flower right away. Whatever mustard seed of faith we have in a moment, it, it often doesn't always immediately turn into the tree that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. We, we very often have to kind of keep working on a truth in our hearts and minds to see and understand its full implications. In verse 16, I think we see Asaph continuing to, to work on this truth that God has children. He's fighting for faith. And he's finding it tiring. Isn't it hard to fight for faith in the midst of darkness? It was hard and wearisome for Asaph to think and believe that God is good to his children in the midst of their suffering. Until, he says there in verse 17, until he went into the sanctuary of God. It wasn't until Asaph went in and worshipped with God, worshipped God with the people of God, that the truth broke into his heart in fullness. Who knows how the Lord did it? Perhaps it was through God's law being read. Perhaps it was through prayers being offered. Perhaps it was through a brother or sister in God's family speaking truth to him. Or perhaps it was the congregation that he was leading and singing, singing truth back to him. Who knows what it was that turned Asaph's thoughts away from himself and the apparent prosperity of the wicked to the truth of God. Whatever the case may have been, there in the sanctuary, the seed of Asaph's meditation came into full flower. And notice, he discerned the end of the wicked. He looked at the end. He, he looked at the day of judgment. You, you don't have judgment without a judge. And God has clearly come into Asaph's view. He meditated on the end of the wicked and he realized that the apparent prosperity that they were enjoying now would not last forever. The joy of the wicked is limited. The pride of the wicked is limited. The violence of the wicked is limited. The haughty speech of the wicked is limited. The prosperity of the wicked is limited. It has an end, for they have an end. There are at least two more points 
of application I think that we need to take away from this portion of Psalm 73. First, I don't think it is an accident that Asaph was, Asaph's thinking was corrected until he went into the sanctuary of God. Very often, perhaps even most often, God will correct our sinful thinking as we come into contact with His Word outside of gathering with His people. But very often, maybe even normally, God uses the gathering of His people, the singing, reading, praying, preaching, and the ordinances, the seeing of His Word to correct us and comfort us. Brother or sister, if you ever find yourself struggling to believe the truth of God's Word, make sure you get to church because you need to hear from God. You need to hear from God's Word. Everyone needs to hear God's Word because we all need to be corrected and comforted. Going off on our own isolates us. It's right where Satan would have us in a dangerous position on our own when we need the community of faith, fellow believers speaking truth into our lives. We need each other and comfort and correction from God's Word. In the midst of life's struggles, we not only need each other, but we also need to remember that there is an end. The wicked will receive the due penalty for their sins. They will earn the wages of their sins, which is death, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We need to remember that we will not always struggle and the wicked will not always prosper. Sometimes, God in His mercy leads us through seasons where our burdens aren't as heavy. But sometimes we go through seasons where our burdens are quite heavy. When we're walking through what seems to be the valley of the shadow of death, we need to remember that our earthly struggles also have an end. One day there really will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. How shall we live this day in light of the last day? Well, that question is answered in the last 10 verses of the psalm. Asaph has been tempted. He has begun to meditate on the truth of God. And in the final section of Psalm 73, Asaph continues to meditate on the end of the wicked. But more importantly, he meditates on the salvation that comes from God. And this is our final point, salvation. And as we consider this point, read Psalm uh, 73, verse 18 through the end, verse 28. Psalm 73, 18 through 28. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. 
you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made the Lord my refuge, that I, might tell, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph's reflection on God's salvation begins, you may, you may notice there, with God's judgment. This is a starting, startling to many, but it is inescapably logical. Salvation does not exist if there is no judgment. There is no need for God to be a refuge if there is no need for refuge. There is irony and difficulty in Asaph's description of God's judgment. The irony is that while Asaph had thought that he might be slipping, see verse 2, in reality it was the wicked who were slipping. While he thought that he was going to stumble and fall, again, note verse 2, in the end it is the wicked who stumble and fall. But the difficulty is that God seems to be involved in the judgment of the wicked. For he is the one, you'll note there, who set their feet in slippery places and makes them fall to ruin. How shall we think about this? The reality is, is that God brings those deserving of judgment into judgment. In fact, it is good and right of him to do so. The, the wicked never willingly come before God's throne for judgment. While they may live in denial of his judgment, they cannot escape his judgment. Verses 19 and 20 stress the immediacy and severity of God's judgment. The wicked are, notice, destroyed in a moment. The wicked thought that God was sleeping. They thought that there was no knowledge with the Most High. But they will see Him arise as the phantoms of bad dreams are swept away the moment our eyes open. So the wicked will be swept away into judgment. In view of the judgment that sinners deserve, Asaph confesses in verse 21 and 22. Asaph was bitter at God's providence. He was bitter towards God. It wasn't until God pricked his heart that he saw it wasn't his circumstances or God's providence that needed to change, but him. He needed to change. He needed to come out from this depressive darkness, out of his ignorance, out of his foolish and angry attitude toward God. Verses 21 and 22 are really instructive when it comes to the issues of depression and sadness. We don't want to hear it, but the Bible tells us that we're responsible before the Lord for our attitudes toward Him. Biblical counselors will often describe depression as a severe turning in on oneself. In that sense, it is not, some, uh, not fundamentally something that happens to us as though we're passive. Depression is something that we may play a role in. Sometimes, we really want to be sad in order to gain the attention of others. If that's the case, surprisingly, sometimes depression can be manipulative. That's not always how depression works. Sometimes there are serious physiological factors at play which make the state of depression even more difficult to pull out of. It's my sense that the Bible nowhere forbids the use of, of medication when it comes to fighting depression. But ultimately, medication will likely not be the main factor which fuels our recovery. Or to put it in more spiritual terms, 
Medication will not be that which strengthens our faith. Ultimately, it is the reversal of turning inward upon ourselves and turning outward to look to God in faith, which will be the driving force in our recovery. And that's where Asaph leads us there in verse 23. While Asaph had turned in on himself and perhaps tried to shut the Lord out of his life, the Lord never left him. As David tells us in Psalm 139, we can never flee from the presence of the Lord. He loves us too much to let us go. And so Asaph was continually with the Lord, for the Lord was holding his right hand. Isn't that a comforting image, a wonderful encouragement? The Lord is our loving Father. He holds our hand when we're scared and weak and needy. He supports us and helps us to stand when we feel like we can't stand anymore. Brothers and sisters, this is what you especially need to remember in those war-weary days. Your loving Heavenly Father is right there. You cannot lose Him, and He cannot lose you. In the words of Psalm 73, 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In the darkness, He is there, holding us up and helping us to stand. The Lord not only helps us to stand by the power of the Spirit, He also guides us with His counsel, with His Word. We know from Psalm 119, 105, that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God's Word should show, would show Asaph where to walk, and ultimately it will lead him to glory. Did you notice Asaph's certainty there at the end of verse 24? After so much uncertainty about whether or not it was really worth following God at the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, Asaph is certain that it is worth it because the Lord will receive him into glory. One commentator noted that in verses 23 and 24, God has grasped, guided, and glorified Asaph. This is... Paul's New Testament refrain in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ultimately, the Lord will save his people. He will receive them into glory. And just as the great theological truths of Romans 8 chapters 8 to 11, lead Paul into doxological praise. So the great truths of Psalm 73, verses 18 to 24, lead Asaph into doxological praise there in verses 25 and 26. Asaph says, Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Through the pain of this world, the joy of sanctuary worship, the Spirit's inner witness, and the counsel of God's Word, Asaph has come to see that God is enough. Though he is weak, God is strong. Though he may not have anything in this life, though he may not have the riches and prosperity of the wicked, he has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Asaph has the hope of glory. He is living this day 
in light of that day. Asaph and all who believe in Jesus Christ today can say with great joy that God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in verses 27 and 28, we come to Asaph's settled conclusion. It is a conclusion that's thoroughly biblical. It is perspective that we must take if we are to guard ourselves from slipping into the mindset of the wicked. If we are to keep from stumbling, we must remember that though the wicked may apparently prosper in this life, that they will not in the life to come. It is better to be near to God and endure suffering in this life than be far from God and suffer in the life to come. Notice the near and far paradigm in verses 27 and 28. Read verses 27 and 28 again. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In verse 27... Asa says that the wicked will perish and be put to an end. The truth of God's word in Psalm 73 is that the righteous and the wicked will experience truly opposite realities in the end. And they will experience them forever. In eternity, what the righteous and the wicked have experienced in this life will be reversed. Just as long as the righteous experience God as their strength and portion forever, so the wicked for the same duration, will experience their perishing, their suffering. And in this light, we see just how it is, how good it is to be near to God. It is in this light that we see just how important it is that we make the Lord God our refuge. If we do not make Him our refuge, if we do not trust in Him, if we live far from Him, so we will die far from His love and under His wrath. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to take refuge in Jesus today. Psalm 73 is quite clear. The earthly prosperity of the wicked will come to an end and it will surprise them. Perhaps you're put off the idea by the idea that you're a wicked person. I can't really do much about that. That's the Bible's description of all who are unfaithful to God. The Bible says something that's even maybe a bit more, a bit more upsetting. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, everyone is wicked. You see, everyone sitting here this morning has sinned and is a wicked person in God's sight, apart from Jesus Christ. We have all decided to live our own way instead of God's way. That's what sin is. And when we decide to reject God's way, we set ourselves up to be God when we're not. And because God is holy, just, and good, we all stand in danger of facing His eternal punishment for our sin. We have sinned against the eternal God, and so we deserve to eternally reap what we have sowed. But the good news is, is that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. He never envied the wicked. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. Because he lived a life of perfect obedience to God, he died the perfect death on behalf of sinners like you and me. 
for all those who would ever turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, for all those who would draw near to Jesus Christ, take refuge in Him, He died bearing the punishment due to them. In that sense, Jesus is our refuge. He shelters us from the wrath of God. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Because of His resurrection, we can be confident that He is a sure shelter from the wrath of God. And we can draw near to God by faith in Him today. Friend, if you would turn from your sins and take shelter in Jesus Christ by faith, then you can be sure of the words of Psalm 73, 24, that God will receive you into glory. And if you want to know more about what it means to find refuge in Jesus Christ and to receive Him by faith, then please find me at the door after the service or talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news, that God has provided a shelter and refuge in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, Christian, I want to encourage you to keep taking refuge in God, to keep turning to Him in dependence upon Him. He doesn't mean for us to take refuge in Him once, but to take refuge in Him each and every day. And how can we not? Given our war and world-weary souls, He's our only source of hope and life and strength. And as we conclude, I want us to think just a little bit more about our Savior in Psalm 73. You know, Jesus tells us toward the end of Luke's Gospel that the Psalms are about Him. And as surely as a faithful Israelite, Jesus would have prayed and prayed and sung this psalm. It's hard to think of our Savior being tempted like Asaph was. But we know from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Where Asaph and we would have given in to temptation, Jesus did not. And I think knowing that Jesus felt the temptation we, descri- we see described here in Psalm 73 ought to encourage us in our world and war-weary days. Because He's been there, He knows just how dark the darkness is. Because He's been there, He knows exactly what help we need. He knows what we need to keep from slipping. And in knowing this, we see that He really is a suitable, sufficient, and sympathetic Savior. In knowing this, we see that we really ought to draw near to Him and take refuge in Him. For He alone can provide strength to our hearts. The strength that our hearts need in our war and world-weary days. Let's pray together.